Welcome back to Trademark Property Company's podcast, Leaning In. This is the second part of an episode, and you can find part one on the podcast page. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm back with Mike Geisler, founding principal and managing partner of Venture Commercial Real Estate, and my good friend, to finish our conversation about mixed use and retail real estate. We also discuss current retail leasing trends and what Mike sees as the future. He also explains Venture Commercial's cutting-edge sector called Venturetainment, and we finish our chat with his advice for those just starting in the industry and talk about his recent win of the Stemmons Service Award. What trends are you currently seeing in retail and how have they changed in the wake of the pandemic and have they changed any with inflation and interest rates? Retail has been, we haven't seen a whole lot of change. In fact, if anything, the last two years, we've had under a million square feet of new retail developed each year in DFW. Yeah. That's nuts. I mean, you can't say that for the last 20 years. I think the smallest amount we ever had was 3 million. Yeah. So that's an unusual comment, but it's a positive one. It has helped push our occupancy into the 95% occupied level. And now what we hear is there's a lot more anchor activity coming back. And I think as those anchors start to land on intersections, then you'll see pad users and strip centers and things like that. We'll definitely see an increase, but it'll be driven by market demand, I think, and, and need. That's one trend. One interesting trend is that the digital brands seem like they're desperate to get to brick and mortar. Post-COVID, their customers aren't shopping online anymore because they are craving that experience again. And so I think that's really interesting. Yeah, we're seeing that for sure. The whole pandemic and shutdown and what's going to happen and so much fear. I'm sure you had shared and we had and our clients and partners had. As it turns out, it's just been so much better than I would have ever envisioned happening. And can you point to a reason that you think that's that's happened and why digital brands are desperate and why retail has just raged back? I think there's a lot more clarity. I think that we have shown that the majority of retail made it through COVID. And if anything, the pent-up desire after COVID showed that that is a long-term need. It's part of our society. And what we've seen is F&B. I mean, the need to socialize and to eat together and all of that has been tremendous. We've seen sales numbers in restaurants we've never seen before. Yeah, going crazy. What about DFW? You work with a lot of brands that are looking at a lot of markets across the country and you hear why they're interested in DFW because that's your primary focus. What do you say about DFW, its future, what you're hearing from the retailers and entertainment folks and F&B brands that y'all work with about DFW and its future? Yeah, well, F&B and entertainment definitely has DFW high on their list. I, you know, there was Chain Storage just did a top 10 retail environments and I thought half of the properties they had on there were, you know, has-beens and not a Texas property. Or maybe there was one, but it just felt like somebody hadn't really been doing their homework. And I think that what I, that leads to for me is just that I still don't know that that consultants and national brokers understand how good sales are here. Interesting. Yeah. Still a very closed-minded East Coast, West Coast mentality. Interesting. So... You have a section of your business called Venturetainment. 
whereby you represent cutting edge, experiential entertainment users, F&B folks. What trends are you seeing in this sector? And do you see anything that's accelerating that or that's providing headwinds to that? Well, you know, I think post-COVID, we saw people get crushed by that, but, you know, because of COVID. But I cannot explain why there are so many, there's so much evolution in entertainment. I mean, it was good before COVID. It was evolving before COVID and it's off the hook now. I don't know that I can explain it, but it's exciting and it's... What are you seeing that you like that you think will stick? Because a lot of it, you know, you see it and you're thinking, you know, will people be flocking to axe throwing 10 years from now? But what are you seeing that you think is going to stick and that's really interesting? Gosh, uh, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple of tennis that I can't talk about, okay. <laughs> but I'd say some of it is coupling a lot of the traditional concepts that were on their own, putting together bowling and rope climbing, whatever you call that, but, but just putting in different, putting different things together so that people have options Yeah, and then seeing that done very well. And then further is having exceptional food with that. So, so who's doing that really well? Can you name a couple? I don't know that I can. And some of that is that I haven't been out to, to some of these things in a while. I haven't gone out to see a movie, but I'm always curious what Brian the, Schultz is up to. Well, and, the movie business is, we looked at the ICSC numbers in our Monday huddle and they're up 210% versus 21 yeah. for last month. Yeah, that's amazing. And my wife and I went to three movies in 90 days and we hadn't been to one in three years. Yeah. Interesting. So retail and mixed use, the importance of mixed use and what works and what doesn't. What are some of your thoughts on that? I think you had Mike Ablon here and, and his opinion is you have to be careful about stacking uses. Yeah, I don't agree. I'm not sure I agree either. <laughs> I think you have to be careful to do it poorly. Right. And with poor timing as well. But, but there, there are some uses that work better on top of each other than others. Yeah. You know, and then there's potentially a quality of life issue where being a little more off the path for, res, for residential makes some sense. Well, your point about not putting luxury residential right in the middle of a loud bar district. Yeah, it's kind of obvious. And something we still haven't learned how to do is create more connectivity. You know, I, I look at as urban as Uptown is and McKinney Avenue, every block, nothing connects you. Nothing it makes it, you know, you, 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 there's nothing that pulls you to the next block. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how. That's what's so unique in Dallas. We have so few real walkable streets about Knox Henderson. I'm interested to see what that looks like in another five years for Knox. Yeah, it's going to be different. Any other ideas about mixed use? What works? What you don't like? I think that I'm thinking more about creating more connectivity and you know, something that's more of a consistent experience. You know, if you live in that, in that neighborhood and you want to walk somewhere, how can you perfect or improve the quality of that whole experience? That's something we're not doing in Dallas Everything, yet that I yeah. want to figure out. I want to figure out. Yeah. So you've mentioned our Market Street Woodlands project and you've told me before you like it and thank you. I spent some time thinking of that project has a total of about 400,000 feet of retail, including the big grocery. <clears throat> if you were building, and, and Waters Creek was almost the same size. And I think that was, you know, a lot of people back in that 04 to 07 
03 to 07 era. That's, you know, there's a lot of retail expanding and you, you put a big program together. If you had a good site today and we're putting together a retail program that was going to amenitize a mixed use development, do you have a sense of what would be different about the retail program? How much smaller it might be than we would have done back then? How would you be thinking differently? Well, I think it would be at least 200,000 square feet, probably 250,000 square feet. Some of that depends if there's, you know, if there's a grocer, you can push that up even a little bit further. But it would be smaller. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Plaza is about 150,000 feet of retail. And it... <laughs> you wish you could double it, of course. Oh, well, wish we had a little bit more. It makes every lease you do important. It creates scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about you for a minute. Earlier in 22, you won the NATCAR North Texas Commercial Association of Realtors STEM and Service Award, which is peer-nominated award that recognizes professional accomplishments and industry and community involvement. And just to me, sort of recognizes the good guys, which you are one. Congratulations, my good friend. And I know that you are clearly one of the most respected leaders in the industry in DFW. Tell us about how you think about the importance of community involvement and what values drive you to prioritize that. Sure. I've been... And as I look here, Mike's looking away because he doesn't like being built up, but, but he deserves it. Getting the award means a great deal to me. It validates things that sometimes just you wonder if you're, you know, does it pay to do the right thing, but you're bound to do it. It's who you are. But I've been thinking about what a remarkable culture we have in this, in the DFW from a real estate standpoint. Again, when we started, it was much more driven by money and then overcoming one of the most devastating you know, economic blows that any state has ever experienced. And then- Which I, one are you talking about? I'm talking about the crash, the the SNL okay, bank yeah. crash. So I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. I couldn't, so not the GFC, but the one prior to that that we yeah. lived through. Yeah. That was so much worse. This is mid to late 80s folks that those of you that are too young to remember. Most guys that listen to podcasts weren't even born <laughs> exactly. yet. Exactly. That's why I interrupted. But gosh, our banking industry in the state of Texas crashed. Almost every significant bank in the state went under. It was uh, caused by deregulating the Savings and Loan Administration, and they became competitors, and there was just no regulation, and lenders were just going crazy, just lending money to anybody, and that was allowing a lot of crap to get built. People that had never built something were paying way too much for land and building something that wasn't practical. Yeah, But I will tell you that I think the reason we had it so easy and 2009, 2010, financially, with our financial institutions, is that I think we remembered how hard that was because it wasn't just banking. Oil hit the, you know, oil tanked as well. The tax laws changed. I mean, it was a confluence of huge issues. A triple whammy for Texas. You mentioned all the banks pretty much went under. And I remember driving someone down the street and whatever street I was on. And it almost didn't matter because it was the case of almost every street in Dallas-Fort Worth. You drive and you look at a piece of commercial real estate, another piece, and every bit of it went back to either a bad bank or the RTC or the FD, almost every single one, unless it was owned by somebody like the Basses in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. Everything went back to the bank. 
what a crazy time it was. Well, and you know, great time to learn though. Sure. For you and I. Herb's partnership with GE was his saving grace. You know, it not only did it help him get out of the bank with, he had half a dozen development projects with Target and there was no permanent financing world out there. And then GE not only kind of helped him, they also bought a ton of RTC real estate and and that became additional product for him too. So yeah, what an interesting time that was. Yeah. As an industry leader, what advice do you have for real estate professionals starting out in this industry today, whether it's Dallas-Fort Worth or across the country? I'd say, you know, just make sure it's something you love doing. Do it for the right reasons. Going back to, we have an amazing culture, real estate culture. I'm amazed at the quality of developers, the quality of brokers, of architects. Everything we do in Dallas, we take for granted. But there's not another real estate community in the United States that has such a cooperative nature to it. Well, it's so interesting you say that, and you mentioned this earlier, that how it used to be, it was only about making money. I I tell people the analogy of when I lived in Dallas and would go to cocktail parties when we were young, in our 20s, only thing anybody wanted to talk about was, you know, how much money you're making, you're working on many big deals, how many K is your starting salary, just... And it was so exhausting for me. I was so disinterested. And we live in Fort Worth now, and, and it's different. And it's interesting hearing you say, so you think things are a lot different now than what I'm remembering. They are. We saw the worst of materialism in that period of time, and it wasn't just about real estate, you know. What's changed? Why is the mindset and culture so much better, you think, and cooperative? I think there has always been a significant cooperative level in the city of Dallas. And it doesn't exist in Houston or New York or, you know, LA or Chicago. But when you and I started in the eighties, the three largest developers in the United States were based in Dallas, Texas, Trammell Crow, Lincoln Property Company, and Vantage. Yeah. And most of those guys- Jerry Hines might argue with you. Well, but, you know, Jerry Hines and the Weingartens and the Moors and those guys, they did not like to work with brokers. They tried to- Yes. They did not like to work with brokers. And I've seen stuff from between Mr. Miller and Mr. Crow that they worked very closely. Or if you think Hank Dickerson and L- yeah, Lincoln okay. Property Company. Yeah. So I think that there was deep levels of trust and partnership that I think has evolved our business into a different state than exists in many other cities. And hence something important in this market like a service award, <laughs> you know, whereas a lot of places there may just be top producer awards, which is very different. Well, Mike, you asked earlier if you could ask me a few questions and I said, sure you can. So tag, you're it. <laughs> Terry, you are the spokesperson. You are the vision for Trademark. And you're very good about messaging the things that you guys are working on and that you are trying to achieve and that you are visualizing in these new environments. What is driving you? What drives you today? Well, no softballs from from my friend, Mike. But seriously, Terry, (laughs) I know enough about you and your operation. I mean, you're playing the long game here. And why do you do it? Yeah. Interesting. Well, obviously not for money. And, you know, fortunately, I've always believed that if you find something you love to do and you do it for reasons that are bigger than money or yourself, you'll make money. Mm-hmm. You know, but if making money is your only goal, 
I think your risk of finding a sustainable ability to make money is, I guess, decreased. I want to make a difference. I got one life and feel like I've been gifted that one, that one life. And I just want to do as much as I can with it, as much positive, not just as much, but as much positive as I can with it. Like you, I've found a career that is at both my productive career, but also my art and craft. And the fact that I get to go to quote unquote work and execute my art and craft every day is why I, why I, people, this is really interesting. I've had a number of people, I was in Colorado last week and they say, Hey, how was it? And did you love it? And were you sad to come back to the heat? And I said, no, actually this particular trip, I was really wishing I was back, which is hard for most people to understand, but we just have so many interesting things going on. And we have a lot of really cool, interesting young people that I get to interact with and I get to mentor and coach and collaborate with that I really get a great deal of gratification from it. And we have chosen to work on a product and to develop ground up product that is cut above and it's places where people fall in love and where they now that we're in the multifamily business where people are going to call their home and it just feels important. And I think it is. And some people may say, that's not that important. You're not a doctor. You're not doing heart surgery or brain surgery. And that's right. But it is important, we think, to our stakeholders. And I just feel very privileged to get to do what we do every day, Mike. One of the things I remember saying at a very early age in the business was that I wanted to leave the industry in a better place condition than when I found it. Mm -hmm. And I think you are a picture of that because I think you have encouraged and invested in so many people. And I'm one of them. Thank you. Yeah. Mike, by the way, is on our advisory board. Honored to have him. You know, leaving something better. I think every property you've touched I love even being in the garage of the, your building here. You know, there's just, there's Terry all over it. You like, <laughs> like our music list that my daughter and I made? It's very cool. <laughs> and you have the kindest way of saying that the cameras are looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> but you have, you've left so many environments in a better place. What you created in Corpus Christi, that's just such a treasure for that town. Yeah. Woodlands. Waters Creek, I loved how you worked with that real estate and the natural beauty it had. So good job. Well, thanks. Do you have anything that is a your biggest worry from a standpoint of business? Yeah, there's a couple of things because I've thought about this. You know, one, I'd say so run, running a company, what troubles you? That sort of question. And one of the things that I have found difficult it's difficult for me to see because I'm always the last one to hear is when you have more than one person who gossips or grouses or complains to one another, as opposed to coming to you with solutions and saying, Hey, there's a problem, something I don't think is going well here. And here's a, something I think should be done about it. Will you help make that better? They just complain to one another and what a cancer that can be. And so that is something that worries me on a daily basis is how can we prevent that? How can we know about it if it's happening and how can we prevent it? And I talked to our EVP of finance and operations today 
And we were talking about that. And he says, you know, if you have 60 people at headquarters, there's likely to always be one or two. You just don't want it to be four or five or six or seven or eight. And I'm an idealist. As you know, I want it to be zero. <laughs> and so, you know, we do all kinds of surveys. We are just constantly asking for input to try to get ahead of those things. And we pivot and make changes all the time based on that input. That is definitely one thing that sort of worries me. Other than that, I'm not a big worrier. I think that, you know, I know we can't control the economy. I know we can't control what the Fed does. I know we can't control how much money the federal government spends or prints, but we can try to just stay on top of it, keep as much, manage our business in a way that keeps as much flexibility as possible and anticipates the what ifs. So when they happen, you're somewhat prepared. I'm not a big worrier, but that's truly one of the few things that worries me. And obviously I'm concerned with keeping people because of this great resignation. I think we've done pretty dang well. Don't have a perfect track record. I'm, you probably don't either. Our odds have been, I think, above average and so happy, but that's a big one. That's something that concerns me. What worries me, one thing is, you know, I just, I worry that we're not doing enough to keep our good people here because mm -hmm. we have a great team of people and everybody that starts here after a week or two or a month, my new assistant just said today, you know, you've got, I've never seen as higher percentage of people that are just fully engaged as you have here, which was great to hear, but it wasn't a hundred percent. So still striving for a hundred. Well, I can really relate to the conversation around gossip and I call it drama. Mm -hmm. There are people that like to create drama and post to focus on solutions. Mm -hmm. And that drama becomes divisive. It casts doubt. Yeah. It creates the opposite of hope of a hopeful future. Yeah. It's a doubtful future. And experienced that too. But I'll tell you that I think we've become so aware of it that we don't have a tolerance for it anymore. Yeah, good. And I think we've done enough right that most of our people have totally bought into where we're going. And, and a lot of it is proof is in the pudding, you know, mm -hmm. taking care of them. Mm -hmm. And you earned that. We had a relatively new employee that started off on the wrong foot from the standpoint of gossip and all that. Mm -hmm. And I think she figured it out and realized this in that kind of place. And I think she's very happy. Oh, didn't leave. Just she changed leave. her behavior. Yeah. And I feel great. I really like that person. Yeah. That doesn't usually happen. Yeah. Anything else? Over the last 30 years, what is one of the, the most significant business challenges you've been faced with or that you've overcome or that you think is something worth sharing? Yeah. Most significant challenges that we've overcome. Well, certainly, Mike, we had about $500 million worth of development either started or just being completed in September of 08. And boy, I was just scared to death. Just scared to death. Was literally had moments where I wondered whether I'd be able to send my kids to private school in the future. And so just hunkering down and sitting down with bankers and sitting down with our people. The only time I've ever had to do layoffs, mm -hmm. which just sucked because I liked most all of those people we had to lay off. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say it had to be that working through that 
feeling like, man, I should have known that this crash was going to happen. But no, who knew? You know, there's two or three people out there that say I wrote that wrote a book, so I knew it was coming. But I wasn't one of those two or three. And so I'd say just having to deal with the emotional side of letting people go, having to deal with the lack of hope that your people, when they everything they read every day is just so negative. And then the having to deal with the real life consequences of personal guarantees and all that goes along with that. But we worked our way out of that and didn't have to write any checks, just actually sold the last property that was under construction during that period or open, just sold it earlier this year. Didn't have to write a check. I was almost sure I would at some stages along the way, but I'd say that was probably it. And I'm sure you can relate (laughs) to that. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Mike. It's been my privilege interviewing a close friend and one of the really good guys in our industry. Mike, A lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, pal. It was fun. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss one. To learn more about Trademark Property Company, visit TrademarkProperty.com.